This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Welcome to RAND. My name is Susan Solar Everingham. I am the director of the office here in Pittsburgh, and one of the more fun things I get to do is uh, participate in these events and uh, meet people who are interested in learning more about what RAND is doing. Dave Schlepeck is our presenter today. He's a senior international policy researcher and also the co-director of RAND's Center for Gaming. And what he's going to talk about today is the rich heritage of gaming at RAND. Um, he's going to start with an overview of what gaming means. Then um, after he's done his overview, I'm going to ask a few questions just to get the conversation started, but I hope that you will uh, jump in as quickly as you are ready with your own questions and comments on Dave's presentation. So let me turn it over to Dave. Susan, thank you very much. Um, thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, I, I, I very much appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to, to be here to listen to me blather. Um, gaming has a very rich history at RAND. In 2009, um, there was a long review essay written on the history of the application of gaming for serious policy purposes, and it had an entire chapter in it titled The Role of the RAND Corporation. Um, gaming goes back as far back as RAND does. Um, you can run down the list of Nobel Prize winners employed at the RAND Corporation who had involvement in the gaming efforts we did um, starting in the 1950s, the early 1950s, as RAND was involved in helping uh, figure out the strategy that the United States would follow in pursuing the Cold War with the Soviet Union, moving through the 1960s when the first efforts were made to apply gaming to a broader range of policy issues, urban policy, the 1970s, the 1980s, when drug policy became a focus of what we looked at, and on forward to today. And I'm going to talk about all these, all these issues in my, uh, in my presentation. So past and future. We think about games, we think about entertainment, right? We've all played games. We played games as children. Many of us played games, play games with our children, with our grandchildren. The important thing to bear in mind about the kind of serious games we play at RAND is that they're based on the exact same principles. They're just built in a slightly different way to a slightly different end. So just like you might play a computer game, just like you might play Risk, just like you might play Monopoly, the same underlying dynamics that are at work when you sit down for an evening of fun with family and friends are at work when you sit down to design and play a game for serious policy analysis purposes. What are those principles? Well, the first is you have an environment in which there is something in dispute. That could be who gets to own Park Place, right? Or that could be who gets to own the Baltic Republics, right? You have actors who have different goals, different resources, different abilities, and different perspectives on the problem. Sometimes they have straight-up goals that are in opposition, right? In a traditional war game, you have a red team, you have a blue team, and they're simply fighting over something. 
But there are other kinds of games where you have participants who may be pursuing similar objectives but have different perspectives. Think about, for example, um, a situation of social unrest. Think about events that transpired in Ferguson, Missouri a few years ago where you had protesters who were taking to the streets seeking to spark social change, seeking to spark change in the dynamic between the police department and the community. And you had the law enforcement uh, agencies who were trying to ensure that, that law and order at some fundamental level was maintained. Both sides were trying to achieve their own individual goals, but neither side was looking to tip the situation over into a full-bore riot, right? Neither side was looking, either the, pro, neither the protesters nor law enforcement were looking to spark a situation that devolved into pure social disorder. Well, that's actually a game. And we've actually designed a game that lets people explore that space. So it's not necessarily actors who are butting heads. It's simply actors who are in an environment where their goals are not completely congruent with one another. Finally, there are a set of rules. In Monopoly, when you pass Go, you collect $200, right? In a war game, you have a timeline that says, well, if you're playing NATO in a war game, at a certain point in time, certain forces arrive that enable you to do certain things. There are always rules. And then finally, there's what we call in our esoteric terminology a model of the consequences of different decisions, right? You have another set of rules, in essence, that tell you what happens when players do things. So in Monopoly, you land on Boardwalk when it has a hotel on it. You probably just lost the game, right? Because the chances are you don't have enough money to, to cover that, right? Same thing in our game of, of social interaction between protesters and police. We have a model, an intellectual representation of how those two entities interact, and as the two sides make decisions, that model says, okay, here's what happens next. And the players have to live with the consequences of their prior decisions with, in order to set up their next round of decisions. So the same principles that apply in a recreational game, the same principles that apply in a game that you're playing with your kids or with your friends apply to a serious game. Okay, but why would you play a game for serious purposes? What, what possible purposes can a game serve? Well, the first is training and education. You can use a game to teach. We just finished, uh, for the first time ever within the party ran graduate school, teaching a course in serious gaming. Teaching, trying to expose our, our PhD students to the value of gaming. We had 10 students, I think, and their final project was basically design a game. And after being exposed to everything that we thought we could teach them about what gaming was good for, more than half of them came up with final games whose purpose was training or education, whose purpose was we have a problem, and the problem is people don't understand the complexity associated with problem 
X, right? So build a game that helps people understand that. This is one really important use for gaming. A second is communication and collaboration. You can have communities that are working on different parts of the same problem who never have a good reason or a good excuse to ever talk to each other. They live in different stovepipes, and they never communicate. You bring them together in a gaming context, and all of a sudden, those stovepipes disappear, those barriers vanish, and they start talking to each other. Matt Caffrey here, who works with the Department of Defense, has probably seen this happen more, more times than he cares to count where you bring in people from the Army and the Air Force and the Navy who are all puzzling about how to do Mission X, and they're all laboring away in their own little corner of the problem space. You bring them in around, uh, around a map and in a war game, and all of a sudden they're talking to each other constructively for the first time instead of just arguing about who's going to get more money for their particular widget. Decision-making and planning. So it would be great if we could plan how to respond to the outbreak of an antibiotic-resistant pathogen without actually having to have an outbreak of an antibiotic-resistant pathogen, because that would be, as I understand it from my friends in the healthcare community, a really, really bad thing. <laughs> so we use a game. We design games to help us work through how would you respond? What's, what, are the, what are the interactions between the public health community and the political community? How do political decision makers manage the risks associated with, say, shutting down the airports, right? With the economic consequences of shutting down the airports, right? Closing schools, right? That's the first thing we do when there's a when there's a, an epidemic threat on the, on the horizon, right? Because kids are little biological weapons laboratories on the, on the best days, right? Let alone when there's some super bug out there floating around. But when you shut down schools, you don't just shut down schools, you shut down parents, right? You shut down businesses. You start shutting down all sorts of things. Huge decision. So you use a game to start playing out the consequences and the interactions of all those consequences. We did a game for the board of our... Uh, Institute for Civil Justice, where they wanted to focus very narrowly on questions of legal liability. Let's say a genetically engineered pathogen escapes containment and causes one of these outbreaks. Who's responsible? Who actually has legal liability for the consequences? Is it the lab? Is it the government funder for the research that produced it? Right? We, we spent an entire day playing a game that let them look at different scenarios about how that might play out. Just exploring a problem space. So many of the problems we tackle at RAND, you know, a problem doesn't come to RAND if it's easy. Problems come to RAND because they're really hard, because they're really complicated, because smart people within government, smart people within the foundation community, smart people elsewhere can't quite get a handle on it. So oftentimes you use a game just because you're trying to get a grip on something. And that's really where the work that I'm going to talk about at the end here, the work we did on NATO defense against uh, Mr. Putin's uh, changing Russia came from. It came from, we're not really sure what's happening here. Let's see if we can get a handle on it somewhere. And then finally, just opening minds. Um, I'll tell a story on a, on a colleague of mine. 
uh, who shall remain nameless, but it rhymes with David Achmanic, for those of you who know him. Um, so uh, in, in between his ten years in, in the Clinton and Obama administrations, he was back at RAND, and we were starting to wrestle with the question of what does it mean when a country gets a small nuclear arsenal. And so we were playing a game uh, using North Korea as our example. And he came into the game thinking, well, come on, really? You're talking about a country that has like five nuclear weapons. They have five. We have 1,500. How is this really a problem, right? Um, And then we played the game. And he walked out of the game going, holy crap, this is a problem. This is huge. This is gigantic. Um, And he was completely seized of the problem. And it actually opened up a stream of work for him, not just at RAM, but even when he went back into the government. Um, because it, it, it allowed him to get a visceral sense of the problem beyond anything he could have read, anything he could have heard in a briefing, sort of living through the world that that situation created had much more impact than it would have just reading even something as brilliant as I might have written, for example. Um, and this is a very powerful uh, example And one game, by the way, can touch all of these spaces. It can start out here, pass through here, get to here, pass through this, and wind up here at various points in its life cycle. So it's sort of a repurposable, uh, repurposable tool depending upon how it's designed and how it's being used. Herman Kahn, wargaming is an amazingly effective for teaching obvious truths that people have resisted because they're unpleasant. Don't underestimate this. It is very easy for people to shrug off things because they just don't want to believe them. But when you put people in front, you actually confront people with the reality of it, even if it's clearly an artificial reality, right? We've all played games with someone who, when they lost, they, in one way or another, kicked the game board over, (laughs) right? Even though it was just a game, right? Bobby Knight throwing chairs, right? Woody Allen, Woody Hayes punching people, right? (laughs) Those were just games, But the experience of competition touches us in a very profound way. I I call it, I have a t-shirt that says, Because Monkeys. And I bought it because I just thought it was kind of meta and cool. I didn't think it meant anything. But I realized that it actually had a lot to do with how I think about gaming and the impact of gaming. It's because of how it touches things in our brain that are really primal and really important. Things like our competitive instincts, things like our desire to look good in front of our peers, Things like our desire to, uh, to, uh, um, to, 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 to seem competent, right? Now, these are important in games, right? It's why, it's why people knock the game board over when they lose. They're also important to decision makers in crises. If you go back and read the transcripts of the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, there's a whole lot in there about having to look tough, and having to you know, make sure that we don't send the wrong message to the Soviets about being weak or being strong. Um, gaming lets you touch those same parts of the brain, lets you engage the same part of the decision-making process. Tom Schelling, 
You can't make a list of things you've never thought of. Again, sounds kind of obvious, but a game kind of lets you do that because a game lets you create an artificial experience. It lets you live through artificial history so that you can think of things you otherwise never would have thought of because you never would have lived through the circumstances that led you to imagine them. Games have real payoffs. The U.S.-Soviet hotline, which was the... It wasn't really a red telephone, but in popular imagination, that's what it was, right? The red telephone on the president's desk, that when he picked it up, connected directly to a similar telephone on the desk of the the premier of the Soviet Union. Um, That actually came directly out of a Rand war game of the early 1960s, which demonstrated the importance of rapid, reliable, direct communication between the leaders of the United States and the Soviet Union in times of deep crisis. They still have impact today. So in 2014, I'm walking back from the Pentagon after giving a briefing on a completely unrelated topic with, uh, with two colleagues, uh, Terry Kelly, who's here in this, in this office, and uh, Tim Bonds, who's the director of our, our Army Research Division. And uh, Mr. Putin here was just uh, in the midst of engaging in his first round of shenanigans with the Ukraine. And the question came up, just to sort of pass the time as we walk, as we walk back from the Pentagon, well, what, what could Russia do to NATO if it wanted to? Now, I'm really good at giving very definitive answers to questions based on no data. <laughs> and so I said, well, obviously nothing, right? I mean, Russia, it's, it's, their military's been on a downward death spiral for 20 years. Uh, during the 1990s, they went through a demographic crisis unlike any experienced by any industrialized country really in history. Um, they, uh, um, their economy is what, one thirty-fifth the size of NATO's. Um, what could they possibly do to the most sophisticated, the richest, the most powerful political military alliance that's ever existed, right? And so Tim looked at me and said, well, if, if I gave you a little bit of money, could you, you know, actually do a little research to back that up? And well, I, I said, you just said the magic words, a little bit of money. Of course I could. And so like a good RAND analyst, the first thing I did was try to find out what other people had written about this and what what other people had done. And there was nothing. Nobody had looked really at the Russia-NATO problem for 20 years, and for, you know, for good reason, really. Um, And so I looked at what the existing tools we had in our toolkit might do for us. And I realized that none of them were appropriate for a number of reasons that are don't bear too much discussion here, although if you're interested, we can talk about it during the, during the Q&A. And so I thought, you know, what we really need here is an old-fashioned board war game. Um, I don't know if, I, if, if any of you ever uh, played um, the, old, the, the games with the hex maps and the little cardboard counters, and you would roll dice and look up combat results on a little, little chart. Um, but that's really what we thought we needed. And so we built one. Now, it was a little more sophisticated 
than what you would have bought from Avalon Hill back in the 1970s. Um, we baked in a lot of results from very sophisticated uh, computer simulation, um, a lot of expert analysis, decades and decades of you know, looking very, very hard at what happens when fifth-generation fighters encounter double-digit SAMs and all sorts of wacky stuff that, again, don't, doesn't, the level of detail doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't bear too much analysis here or too much discussion here. Um, but we basically built an old-fashioned manual war game, and we started playing it. And it looked sort of like this. And so over here, you had all the lovely Russian forces, and over here, all the lovely NATO forces on a map with a hexagonal grid, which, by the way, RAND invention. Before RAND came along, we played war games on square grids. Not making that up. It's true. And what we discovered, that contrary to my initial inclination, that in no... In more than two dozen plays of this game with players from throughout the U.S. defense and intelligence enterprise, so all the armed forces, uh, the CIA, DIA, uh, Washington, for, uh, folks from Washington, folks from Europe, NATO partners, nobody could keep the Russians from the outskirts of Riga, which is the capital of Latvia, from the outskirts of Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, for more than 60 hours. Um, and they got there, in fact, in as little as 36 hours. Now, I've been in this business for a very long time. I started doing this in 1982. Don't let my boyish good looks fool you. Um, I did thousands of simulations of wars between the Warsaw Pact and NATO. NATO lost most of those wars. It never lost in 60 hours. It, it never suffered this kind of catastrophic failure. Um, so after I got over the humiliation of being so completely, utterly wrong in my, initial, um, in my initial assessment of the situation, we went forward and started looking at, well, why? Why does this happen? And we realized that it was, starts off with the fact that it's a fight of metal against flesh, when the fight starts, the Russians have almost 500 tanks on the ground. NATO has exactly zero. Technically, it's wrong. NATO has one. Latvia owns one Soviet-era T-55 tank that they use for target practice. <laughs> Again, not, not making that up. Not making that up. Um, then you look at the fires problem, the indirect fire, the artillery, the multiple rocket launchers that the two sides can bring. That is, in essence, the way to fire the red side does. That's the way to fire that the blue side does. And so what you have is this situation where NATO is outnumbered, outranged, and outgunned. And the outcome is a strategic conundrum that no American president, no British prime minister, no German chancellor would ever want to find themselves in. A situation where you have a choice of conceding defeat escalating to the immediate use of nuclear weapons or spending six months to build up a force of sufficient power to launch a conventional counteroffensive and hoping the Russians decide not to resort to nuclear weapons. 
None of those seem like appealing options. So how do you avoid it? Right? Because the goal is not fight a war with Russia and win. Fighting a war with Russia and winning is a strategic disaster. The goal is how do you keep the war from happening? The password is deterrence, like it always has been and always will be. How do you keep this from happening? So how do you do that? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to have more forces there. You have to put some metal on the ground on the NATO side of the fight as well. So the next round of gaming we did was trying to figure out what it would take to change this calculus. How do you change the view from Moscow from a Sunday drive to the Baltic Sea? I mean, Riga is 135 miles from the border with, with, uh, with Russia. The fastest we allow in our war game Russian forces to move is five miles an hour. That's the fastest they're allowed to move, right? I mean, that's, that's not real fast. Uh, and they still get there in 36 to 60 hours. Uh, so you have to put tanks on the ground. And we found that if you put about three heavy brigades on the ground, that's about 15,000 soldiers, uh, about 250 tanks on the ground, you begin to level the playing field. You also pre-position more forces in the region so that once you stop the enemy forces, you have enough follow-on forces available that you can sustain that defense uh, for a while. And finally, you recover the kind of air-ground synergy that NATO used to have back in the 1980s where you, you air power was used to enable land power and land power was used to enable air power. It's a very different situation today than it was then, but the same sorts of principles still apply. We've lost some of those techniques because for the last 20 years we've been engaged in the kind of warfare that wasn't, uh, where, those, where that wasn't necessary. We have to regain them, we have to relearn them, we have to change the way we do business a little bit, but it's not something that is, um, that is impossible to do. We wrote a report. We wrote a 16-page report, it's downloadable from our website, and we did that deliberately. We made it short because we didn't want to get too wrapped up in all sorts of side conversations about politics and, and everything else. We wanted to say, here's an operational strategic problem, here's what it looks like, and here's how you fix it. Uh, these numbers, I think, are as of last November. I believe as of that time, it was the most downloaded report um, of the year. And I think it was the second or third most downloaded in RAND's history, uh, including 2,200 downloads in Mother Russia. Um, and it's had impact. The Secretary General of NATO distributed copies to every permanent representative uh, at NATO headquarters. And um, it was instrumental in two major decisions, one in Washington, one in Brussels. The decision in Washington was to uh, boost what's called the European Reassurance Initiative by about $3.4 billion and incorporate 
the, what's, what the Army calls a heel-to-toe rotation of an armored brigade combat team into Europe. Today, for the first time in five years, there are U.S. Army tanks in Europe on a full-time basis. Um, and there will be. Um, a, a, a brigade rotates in, rotates out. Another one rotates in on its heels. Secondly, NATO has deployed four uh, battalion size, battalion plus size battle groups forward, one each in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. These are the first NATO forces deployed east of the, uh, the former Federal Republic of Germany on a permanent basis since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, and this work that we've done was instrumental in motivating both of these decisions. So you ask, what, what, can, what can gaming accomplish? Uh, in this case, it's begun the process of restoring a robust NATO deterrent against the prospect of Russian aggression against the North Atlantic Alliance. So that's my presentation, which took a little longer than I hoped it would. I apologize for that. Um, but I thank you for your, pet, for your patience. And now let's move on to the more interesting part of the evening, shall we? You, you kind of brushed off the issue of why you chose the game for the approach to understand the situation in the Balkans. And I think it's really interesting to understand a little bit more about when this approach is the best approach, why you wouldn't use one of the other approaches that we typically use at RAND to do policy analysis, a computer model, a focus groups, a Delphi exercise, some statistical analysis, on and on and on. Could you talk a little bit more sure. about why this was the right approach in this case and how you decide what approach to use? So uh, let me start from the general and work to the specific. Um, as a general case, the, the use of gaming is most indicated, I think, when you're most interested in what happens when the idiosyncratic behavior of human beings interacts. So when you have... Um, uh, in this case, the NATO side, the Russian side, each with multiple degrees of freedom, multiple areas of choice mm -hmm. about what sorts of forces they make available to themselves, how they employ those forces, uh, stra strategy, tactics, um, actually letting people make those choices as opposed to schematicizing it or abstracting it or trying to shove it into a computer um, is usually a good, uh, 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 it's, it's a powerful mechanism. See what people, when you're, when you're trying to figure out what people will do in a situation, actually seeing what people do in the situation is, mm. is often a, a nice way to start. Um, so typically, I, I, what people come and say, well, you know, we have this project looking at X. Do we need to have a game? Well, if X is really about how do the choices of human beings interact to create unexpected outcomes or create complex outcomes, then gaming is often a very powerful tool. 
Um, so it's not something you use when you're trying to decide necessarily whether you want to buy widget X or widget Y, right? I often tell people that, you know, uh, the Department of Defense will sometimes do that. They'll sometimes try to use wargaming to decide whether, you know, a force structure that has lots of this toy versus that toy is better or worse. And I always say, well, that's, that's great, except what if the team using this toy is being led by Ulysses Grant and the team using that toy is being led by Hugh Grant? <laughs> right. Are you learning more about the toy or are you learning more about the skills of the commander? The leadership. Right. So gaming is about the human factor, not about the technologies, not about the toys, not about the widgets. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is that, um, you know, gaming works at different parts of the research process. So you can use it early in the research process as sort of a screening tool to do that exploring of the problem space that I talked about. Uh, where you're not sure really what the problem is, you can sort of use a game to rapidly sort through mm -hmm. lots of ideas. Mm -hmm. um, then you can use it in the middle as a no-kidding analytic tool. Mm -hmm. And then you can use it as the end when you can take your highly refined, brilliantly thought out policy recommendation and see what happens when the monkeys get their hands on it. <laughs> um, so it, it, it works sort of at, at, at different stages depending upon what you want it to do. In this case, we looked at like the various computer models we have, uh, you know, the combat simulations. Right. And we recognized that they didn't appropriately represent what we thought the core nature of this conflict would be in terms of the way forces would be used, the way forces interacted with space for example, um, and we wanted to get answers quickly. We wanted to get 80% right fast versus 90% right slow. Um, and I'm one of those people, I'm, I'm a political scientist by training, so I'm sort of connected and convinced that the majority of reality lives on the left-hand side of the decimal point. Um, and gaming is very much a left-hand side of the decimal point undertaking. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm comfortable working in that world. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, you talked a little bit about Rand's role in developing the methodology. First question, because I'm a math person, was why are hexagons better than squares? <laughs> because because it's, the, it's the most sides you can have on a regular polygon that nests perfectly with one another. Indeed. Very good. Excellent. Um, is that the right answer? Uh, yeah, I think okay. it is, actually. <laughs> it's much more complicated in three dimensions, but in two dimensions, I think everybody can kind of visualize right. that. Um, but also, um, related to Rand's role in, in using this tool, um, is Rand the only organization that uses these kinds of tools? No, no. I mean, there, there are um, other think tanks do it. Uh, commercial companies uh, do it. Uh, DOD does it internally. Um, the services use them. It's a it's a very well recognized um, methodology. I mean, Matt organizes a conference once a year, twice a year. Once in the U.S. Once in the US um, this year, it's going to be at Quantico, right? I think I just saw the announcement come out um, for for the wargaming community. Um, so it's a it's a it's a widely known, widely applied, widely we just do it better than anyone. Okay. 
Uh, one last question before we turn it over to the audience. Um, how does gaming and serious games relate to game theory, which also has a connection with RAM? Absolutely. So I, I like to tell people that game theory applies to gaming the same way economic theory applies to your, I don't know, your shopping trip to Costco. Um, it, it, it underlies it. Uh, you know, game theory as the, th the, 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 the theory of strategic choice, right? Um, just like economic theory really guides your behavior uh, uh, in, in many ways, yep. right? At, at least the... the, the Theoretically. At, at, least <laughs> the, at least the good kind of economic theory. Yeah. Any economists here? Okay. Um, the, 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 right? Samantha um, raised her hand. <laughs> um... The game theory is at the root of a lot of what gaming is, right. um, but it's not sort of right at the surface of it. We don't—you don't have to have a lot of, of, uh, of you know, two by two matrices and payoff tables and things necessarily. But those are all sort of implicit in in a lot of this. But that again, that's true whether it's one of these games or a game of Monopoly. I imagine someone somewhere has someone somewhere in some math department has written a game-theoretic description of Monopoly. Yes, they have. <laughs> so. Well, uh, let's turn it over to you all and see what's on your minds. Um, if you had done this game development five years earlier and NATO had reacted as it did five years earlier, how do you expect the Crimean annexation would have played out differently? <laughs> that, that, that is almost an impossible question to, to answer because I would have implied a, a degree of prescience on our part that is, is, uh, is, is hard to credit. Um, I, I think that um, Crimea is almost a sui generis case for what the Russians did there. Um, if you look at Crimean history, um, both pre- and post-Cold War, um, it was a, a unique opportunity for the Russians in terms of being able to do what they did. Um, the, the lack of a uh, of, of really deep political, social, cultural, linguistic connections to Ukraine. You know, Crimea was given to Ukraine by Khrushchev in the 1950s sort of as a, as a apology for what Stalin had done uh, to, to Ukraine and the Ukrainians. Um, sort of one of those weird Khrushchevian things that eventually got him fired. Um, that um, I don't know whether there was anything NATO could have done, in w no matter how well postured it had been, to prevent Putin from doing what he did if he decided to do it. It was, it was sort of the lowest of low-hanging fruit. Um, that's the best answer I can give you to what was indeed an impossible question. Could you have anticipated the way, if you played a game, could we have anticipated the way Russia... Uh, pulled it off? I think it would have been interesting in retrospect um, to have played a, uh, uh, a Russia strategy game a few years ago um, to look at, uh, you know, given, given what we had seen after Georgia, for example, in 2008, um, to sort of explore, okay, what, what else might Russia do? Mm. What if, if we sort of look at 
Putin as someone who is maybe not necessarily interested in playing entirely within the rules of mm. the post-Cold War European security order? Mm. Um, what other things might he do? Mm. Might we have identified that sort of gesture of greatness of seizing Crimea as one of those options? Um, we, we might have. That, that, I think that goes into the, the shelling box of you know, giving us an opportunity to think of things we never thought of. Yeah. I have a footnote and a question for you. Okay. I loved your list at the beginning. But I just learned recently from a lecture on television that I um, that Monopoly was used during World War II in specially set up sets to send to the American soldiers in the in, that were being held by Nazi Germany. The Nazis let them use it because it it kept them out of uh, harm's way, so to speak, and there was less trouble for the Nazis to control them. But what they did in these special sets was slide in maps of the location that it was being sent to to help um, the soldiers know how to escape. Mm. And they also sent in miniature um, saws. Now, don't think big ones. Small (laughs) saws to help the soldiers cut metal. Okay, that's interesting. So it's sort of like the old, you know, slipping the saw in the cake that you send to the prisoner. Right, (laughs) right. So so the Nazis never sort of glommed on to, normal Monopoly sets don't have this lumberjack token. Where's that (laughs) My question for you is that as a very young history teacher, I was taken to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. We didn't see the game but we were told that the soldiers were being trained in terms of nuclear war games. All right, now. My question is a general one. Do you teach moral ethics and confront soldiers with games that allow free will choices on the part of the soldiers and are not, how shall I put this? I don't mean to offend you. Not at all. Not not propagandize them and say you have to go one way or the other. Absolutely. Um, I can't always talk in great detail about um, some of the games we play because of issues of classification and so forth, but I can tell you from personal experience that I have been involved in any number of games where the, the primary lesson coming out of the game for the participants has been... Um, I want to say it's a moral choice because I'm not an ethics professor, but has been to consider very carefully the consequences of your actions um, because, and again, that's one of the beauties of a game is that you have to live with the consequences of your actions. What you do on move one creates the world you have to live in on move two and so on and so forth. And we've had many, many games where people make choices on move one, and on move two they go, okay, clearly we made a bad call on move one. Can we please sort of go back? Can we rewind the clock and try something different because it didn't wind up where we wanted it to be? And one of the beauties of a game versus reality is you can hit that rewind button and say, all right, let's try it having learned that lesson that you learned. And so particularly on issues like, for example, you mentioned nuclear 
nuclear war, on, on issues of like nuclear escalation, um, particularly today where we have an entire generation of military officers and civilian leadership in the Department of Defense who have come up after the Cold War, who don't have the experience that I had and many of us in this room had of growing up with the constant specter of nuclear annihilation over our heads. And I actually professionally worked in that world for many years. Having, using games as a way of familiarizing people with the consequences of, of being in that world and of the choices that are entailed in that world so you don't think glibly about it and you don't think loosely about it um, is, is very powerful. Um, so while I wouldn't necessarily frame it as a moral education, uh, I do think that teaching people about the potential consequences of choices is, is a very important part of what we do. It's, it's really the heart of what we do. Two quick questions. One is when you were starting your assumption modeling, where do you literally get the data to know ru where Russia stands at that moment? Like how many tanks they have? Like how do you literally get that starting data? That's my first question. My second question is, can you talk a little more in detail about the thought process of publishing your paper? Like what that would mean to really provide transparency to the situation, to really show the leverage that Russia does have then, and then talk about the after effects. You know, did you really feel that Russia does know that it has the leverage or that NATO does have to react? Can, can you walk us through the, the pre and the post of the, of the paper literally being published? You're, you're, you're asking me to, 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 to relive what was at simultaneously one of the most painful and most satisfying periods of my life. Um, so let me, let me, uh, try to do it in as dispassionate a way as I can. Um, the first question on the data is the easier one to answer, right? Um, for this particular game, we, were, we started out using um, sort of the, the, if you will, the standard unclassified sources for things like this. Uh, there are a number of organizations, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, um, the uh, um, th there's a number of organizations out there that maintain databases like of Jane's, and stuff Jane's stuff like that, yeah. um, who maintain uh, orders of battle for different countries, inventories of equipment, characteristics of equipment. Uh, but we also went, we have uh, our own data sources that we've maintained over the years at, at both classified and unclassified levels that we could draw on to know what the relative capability of this tank gun or versus that armor was. Um, and so we drew on all those different things. We drew on literally tens of thousands of runs of various simulation models that enabled us to, to have some insights into what happens when this kind of airplane shoots at that kind of airplane. Um, and so we, we sort of baked all that into the, the game itself. In terms of the, the publication and the dissemination, this was something we, we wrestled with quite a bit. Um, on the one hand, you know, what did we tell the Russians? If, 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 the, if the Russians can do anything well, it's math. Um, and the Russians have inherited sort of the Soviet approach to doing military analysis, which is very quantitative. Um, I don't think we told them anything they didn't already know. Um, so on that, I feel my conscience is pretty clear. Um, the, 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 
the one thing we didn't anticipate, I don't think, was the impact this would have in some of the more affected countries. Um, my colleague Mike Johnson, my co-author Mike Johnson, um, met the Latvian ambassador to the U.S. a few weeks ago and uh, was told, you have no idea how foreign direct investment to my country dried up after you published your report, um, which is something that we just did not anticipate. That was something we had, we had no idea that that was going to be something that, that, that happened. Um, um, and, and, for, and he said, fortunately, you know, that was a, it was a temporary thing, right? It was sort of this, oh, my God, oh, wait, the Russians aren't coming today. Um, but, but there was sort of this, this, this brief period where they actually had issues with, with things like FDI as a result of that, um, which we had no – it just never – it never occurred to us that the pebble we were throwing in the pond would have those kinds of ripples. And we've gotten a, we, we got a lot of pushback from a lot of unexpected sources um, within NATO initially um, about you know why are you why are you saying these things why are you why are you um, you know you're not being helpful da 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 um, but the point is we were sparking the conversation which is what we felt we wanted to do um, the issue was less we have the exact right answer do exactly what we're telling you to do as much as it was, here's this big problem that no one's talking about, and if it actually happens, we are all in a world of hurt. So let's at least talk about it and see if we can come to some sort of consensus of what can be done to try to prevent it from happening. And that, I think, is the conversation we, we ultimately sparked. There was a certain amount of Sturm und Drang involved and a certain amount of drama um, but in the end, I think we got the conversation we wanted, and we saw some changes happen that were moving in the right direction. There were some moments in retrospect that's like, we could have probably handled that a little differently. But uh, in the end, I think we got where we wanted to go, um, at, at least with this one particular part of the work. I was going to say, were NATO military planners surprised? It sound, Maybe it's more appropriate to say... They just really hadn't allowed themselves to think about this. I think that's part of it. I think, I think, I don't think, it was, it was, again, it was one of those, to go back to the con quote, right? In retrospect, it was a pretty obvious conclusion yeah. uh, that no one had really sort of looked square in the eye yeah. previously. Um, and I, I think the, the biggest surprise was the rapidity with which the, the, the catastrophic defeat was inflicted. I think that was the thing that, that, that was the aha headline. Yeah for most folks was you lose that fast. Yeah. And that was, that was what I think caught people's attention as much as anything else. The um, Baltic war game is very impressive, but it's a classic war game of conventional warfare. Can you tell us a little bit about the state of the art of gaming non-conventional warfare? I mean, do we have good games about the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, players like that? Good. We actually have uh, a game that a couple colleagues of mine, um, Stacy Pettyjohn, who's the other co-director of the Gaming Center, and uh, Becca Wasser, who's a MIDI scholar in our Washington office, developed that is, uh, is a game of uh, fighting ISIL. And it's a different kind of game. It's also played on a map, but it's a more abstracted map. Um, and it's designed to sort of challenge different strategic approaches to dealing with it. So 
Uh, for example, as the coalition side, you're challenged to make choices about do you work more on building the capacity of your partners, say the Kurds, versus more direct action on, on your part? Do you deploy uh, U.S. ground forces to the region? Well, that has certain costs, risks, and consequences. Um, so we, we do have games along those lines. Um, we're also working, in fact, this week we are testing uh, a work of a, a, a game on what we call gray zone conflict. Um, if you think about some of what uh, China has done in like the South China Sea, where they're sort of pushing and shoving, but you know, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, am I bugging you, I'm not touching you, right? Um, that sort of you know, kids in the backseat of the car kind of conflict. Um, we, we're actually trying to build a game that lets us explore that domain of conflict. And what we're trying to do is link all these games together so that we're not just sort of looking at one, we're not boxed in, so that as we, as we imagine a scenario potentially evolving from sort of one domain to another, we can actually move fairly seamlessly in our simulation from one to another. We do cyber. Um, so, for example, our, our Baltic game has an entire dimension of, of play in cyberspace that's associated with it that we can also abstract out and apply to these other, uh, these other domains. So, yeah, we're working very hard to, to try to uh, reflect these other, these other kinds of, of, of conflict as well. That's a really great question. I'm very interested in uh, the effects of games on expanding people's mental capacities, extending them. For example, uh, there's a lot of um, data on, on teaching teenagers, at-risk teenagers, how to play chess, and it improves their mm -hmm. thinking through consequences, et cetera, uh, long-term type thinking instead of, and it reduces, well, improves impulse control. Uh, on the other hand, first-person shooting sounds like a glorified combat sim simulation, and everyone says, oh, gaming doesn't ca turn you into a killer, but I think it does de can desensitize you to what you're simulating. Um, I'd like to, could you just offer some thoughts on the effect on you see on people's thinking from playing games, and also what, what are we doing, how far have you gone with virtual reality in your games? So uh, I think that one of the most powerful things that, games do is affect the way people think. Um, it, it's because it is a visceral experience, um, I have found that I can stand up and give the most brilliant briefing in the history of the world or write the most brilliant paper in the history of the world. But if I get people around a game board and say, no, no, you solve this problem. Right? I'm not going to. I can stand up and describe to you why this problem isn't solvable, or why it's only solvable in the following ways. No, no, you solve it. It's it's a much more potent experience for them. Um, one of the things I'm really interested in is how do we make this much more accessible to folks. One of the challenges with a lot of our games is that they take a lot of time, they take a lot of people, they take time to prepare. Um, 
two weeks ago, I was asked to uh, play a game with our party-ran graduate school board of governors. But I was only given half an hour. I was given half an hour to teach them the game and play the game. And, um, I mean, I don't even think you can play Candyland in, in half an hour. With <laughs> so I decided to make the problem even harder. And I said, fine, and I'm going to limit myself to actually playing the game with just ordinary playing cards. But it has to be a game that demonstrates how gaming can be used for policy. And so I worked with, I started with a basic game mechanic that two of my colleagues, uh, Brian Jackson and Dave Frelinger, developed, um, starting with a very small seed grant they got from the Center for Gaming. Let me get that plug in here. Um, and then elaborated working with other colleagues of mine. And we developed a game, a very schematic game of great power competition that could be played with two decks of ordinary bicycle playing cards, a red deck and a blue deck with three teams of players. And the idea was basically to take this group of people, very smart people, uh, very uh, accomplished people, but not people who were experts on international relations or foreign affairs, and sort of expose them to some of the basic principles of, of great power competition in the international environment. So things like deterrence, things like brinksmanship, things like bandwagoning, it's the sorts of things that you learn in International Relations 101. Um, and we did it. We actually did it. I spent 10 minutes explaining the game. They spent 20 minutes playing the game. Most of them blew up the world once. Um, <laughs> and then the second time around got better. And when Susan Marquis, the dean of the graduate school, called time, every single one of the three, three groups that were playing said, what, we have to stop? Um, and they were very skeptical when they started. They were like, what, why are we doing that? Wait, this is another st one of these stupid things that Susan always has us do when we come to these things. <laughs> we're going to stop coming to these things if she makes us, keeps making us do this. Um, but they actually got it, and they actually got the teaching points, right? Um, I would like to be able to do that more, and I'd like to be able to expand that. We do a lot of things at RAND working with youth, right? We do a lot of things about helping teach kids how to make better choices, whether it's about smoking or diet or substance abuse. I'd like to think about how we use games for that, and not just these big fancy games that we do that cost a decent amount of money and take months to develop, but what we could do with a couple decks of playing cards and a couple smart people thinking about how you could, how you could, how you could employ them. I think, I think that's an untapped angle for, for what we could do. As far as virtual reality, we actually have, um, and this goes back to what Susan was talking about, about our donor-funded work. Mm -hmm. We actually have uh, a, a RAND-funded project that's ongoing right now that's looking at how to use augmented reality and virtual reality um, to create enriched gaming environments. Um, and that, that um, Stacy is actually sort of the point person for that um, uh, on, the, on the gaming side. Uh, but she's working with, with some really talented folks here um, looking at how you, how you exploit that. We're, we're, we are not on the leading edge of that. Um, when I came to RAND, we were on the cutting edge of how you employed information technology for gaming. Um, but that frontier 
is is now in the commercial sector, right? That and and that is light years away from where we are at RAND today. I admit that freely and with the greatest humility. Um, but we need to catch up. We need to start exploiting that more. Um, and we're in very very early stages of it, but we are trying to at least take a, a nibble at that apple. Sounds like an opportunity for partnership because. Um you know, we're the experts in using these games for strategic purposes. Maybe there are some I would, other I would, players I would, that we can I would, work I would, with, I would, I would maybe love, even in Pittsburgh. I would love to forge that partnership. Yeah. It's a quick question. Uh, do you ever reverse, ga- reverse engineer your games? In other words, an event occurs, Ferguson, and now you go back and sort of like try to take it apart and get back to the game that you might have played. It would then be useful for training and mm-hmm. the next time. Um... Not in not in the strict sense, but we do use real world events as ways of testing our games. So we'll look at a game that we built to explore a kind of problem, and then we'll look at a real world problem that occurred that is of that kind. And we'll say, okay, how would that event have, does our mechanic, does our approach, does our design, would it have allowed us to simulate what we saw in the real world? Obviously, because games are about how people interact, it's very hard to know that even if you had played Ferguson in advance, you would have gotten that outcome because you wouldn't necessarily have had the same people doing the same things. But you, you do want to look back and say, would the game we designed to model Ferguson-like phenomena have allowed participants to arrive at those outcomes? So we do use them as reality checks, if not necessarily as, sort of to, to strictly speaking, reverse engineer them. We've talked a little bit about like the role of games and like the outcome of games and how they affect things. I'm actually very curious about the nature and the design of the games themselves. So uh, specifically when we're talking about this simulation, are we having people actually act as the different forces on both sides? Are the people that are representing the NATO alliance actually facing just against a game that plays against themselves? Like what are the actual mechanics in this game? Like. So the, the the two sides are both played are both free play, and they're both played by uh, teams with expertise. So on the red side, we have uh, players who are a mix of folks who have knowledge of Russian doctrine, Russian tactics, Russian capabilities, as well as folks with expertise in you know military maneuver. Uh, air power, land power, naval power, and the same is true on the on the on the NATO side. Um, typically, the teams are dominated by uniform military personnel, uh, intelligence community personnel. We usually seed them with RAND experts, just because the one of the design features of this particular game, uh, which is called RFLEX, it stands for RAND Framework for Live Exercises. It's a retronym. We came up with the acronym first and then decided what it meant. (laughs) Um, Is that you don't have to know how to play the game to play it. Um, So we have ran people on the teams so that we can be sure that the players' decisions are being accurately uh, reflected in how the game is done. 
Um, but they're given free play. So they're given sort of strategic guidance, right? Russia, here's your strategic goal. President Putin has told you, here's what you're trying to do. NATO, the, you know, Brussels has given you these orders. But with, within that context, they're given free play to choose their own operational strategy and their own tactics. And then we have a set of, just like any game, we have a set of rules that govern how the forces move, how they interact, and then a set of, a, a set of rules that govern what happens when aircraft bomb ground forces or when, ground for, when artillery, right? So just like any other game, we have rules that govern the interaction of the pieces. This, we usually play this particular game over about three days. Okay, so you're reverse engineering basically 4.3 billion years of evolution in an algorithm that's been running over and over and over again, and you're here now 4.3 billion years later seeing, you know, some of the stuff worked, some of it didn't, some of it wound up in a Darwinian waste heap that didn't, <laughs> we didn't inherit that, the rest of it that worked, that once they got their genes into the next generation, they wound up with us, and, and here we can play this game, right? I mean, basically, we're back to Garrett Hardin's and we're coming up to the 50th anniversary here of the tragedy of the commons, right? right? That's, that's right about, um, I should check the date, but we're getting very close. And I think that's probably one of the seminal writings in, in everything that we're talking about here. And Garrett did say that there are some problems for which there are no technical solutions. So, you know, so that was 50 years ago, maybe one of the documents that kicked this whole thing off. And, and it, you know, no small part of what you're dealing with here seems to be risk analysis, obviously, and it's risk tolerance, risk aversion. Yeah. And as the stakes get higher, we might be willing to become more tolerant of risk, you know. And so this is all really about um, how does a species claim its niche in the ecosystem, right? I mean, that's, that's how it works. And, and we've inherited those genes, and so we're thinking through this. But the, but the stakes keep getting higher, and the stakes that are getting higher for us is that the planet keeps adding about 246,000 people, births minus deaths, every day, every day. Last year was 243,000. Five years before that, it was 19,000 fewer per day. That's why this is maybe getting to be a, a burning question, Susan, I don't know. But, you know, so the stakes keep getting higher, and are we getting to a point where we may have a problem to which there really aren't any technical solutions, as Garrett Hardin asked? I don't know. Um, you know, given what I do for a living, I am, I am predisposed to say that if we think about it hard enough and we work at it hard enough and we work together, we can probably m at least mitigate the worst consequences of 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 what you're talking about. Um, I don't know. Maybe that makes me sound uh, Panglossian. <laughs> um, to tie it back to to this, um, I think that one of the beauties of gaming as a technique is that your 4.3 billion years of evolution is that gaming really does, from, from the very front of your brain to the very base of your brain, is engaging all of that, right? I have seen people get angrier playing a game than I've ever seen them get listening to a briefing. <laughs> I've seen them get a lot more excited playing a game than I've ever seen them get reading a RAND report. <laughs> um, That's for sure. And we've written some pretty exciting reports. Don't... don't <laughs> Don't let, don't let me, um, 
you know, the, the, and, and I think the way that you solve these really hard problems, the way you, the way you, or at least you get a handle on them, the way you build consensus around at least what they are, is you get people to break down those stovepipes I talked about earlier. You get people to break down the mental barriers that separate their, uh, that, that minimize their ability to communicate with one another. And you sort of get them around the table. And you get them engaged on the same problem. And you get them excited about the same things and angry about the same things and upset about the same things. Right? And then you maybe have the possibility, maybe you have the prospect that these, these hard problems, whether they're environmental problems, whether they're social problems, whether they're economic problems, whether they're security problems, can be, can be, can be dealt with. Because from the base of the brain to the front of the brain, you've kind of touched everybody and gotten those brains engaged looking at the same picture in sort of the same way. Maybe that's the best answer I can give you. I think that was a good last question. Thank you very much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.